0: Hey friends, welcome to Friday, February the 11th, and thanks for joining me for today's episode of Enough for Today. We've had a good week, and we've started to look at Psalm 36, and so I invite you to join me there, and as we are uh, getting ready to go into God's Word, I want to remind you, first of all, uh, congratulations for finishing another week. Um, I hope it's been a good week for you. Secondly, I want to encourage you to join us on Sunday at Emmanuel. We're going to have a wonderful day. And, um, and then uh, pray, pray as we come through this season that lots of our church family will return. In fact, most have, um, and that God will continue every week. We're seeing people come to Christ, uh, prepare for baptism, uh, be discipled. It's just the story continues to unfold. Uh, our, our growth track uh, classes, there's four of them. And right now there's over, I think, over 60 or 70 people in that growth track Uh, class structure that's our foundational discipleship there's 18 or 20 in the starting point class learning the gospel Uh, so pray for those things pray that we'll just stay on mission as a church and that God will continue to use us in this time to magnify Jesus Uh, preach the gospel and encourage others not only to know him but to share him and that's what we're here to do in this life to make a difference hey join me in psalm 36 And we broke this down in three parts. In the first part, David is kind of looking and analyzing and diagnosing the wickedness around him. Um, And in part two, beginning in verse five, he looks up and his eyes begin to take on the full beauty of the mercy and the loving kindness of God and how he can find refuge in that. And then the end uh, of this psalm lands with uh, David praying and asking God to preserve him, protect him, through the journey through a wicked world until uh, sin finds its death, till sin is brought to an ultimate uh, conclusion, and till 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 Jesus conquers it all. Well, look at verse one: "The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before His eyes." Some uh, now, this is remember this is poetry, and some translations phrase this in a way that it, the transgression of the wicked is speaking within their own hearts. David makes it personal as though someone else's transgression is teaching him. Okay, either way, um, it's not inappropriate to go either way. Uh, But the main idea here is that sin is real, wickedness is real, and when we choose to defy and rebel against God, we've chosen wickedness. And that represents in and of itself an absence of the reverence and the fear of God. And so there is, a, there is a kind of heart right now on planet Earth that says, I don't want Jesus, I don't want grace, I don't want gospel, I don't want redemption, I don't want God. That is by default a choice for wickedness, that which is opposed to God. And it is the loss of the fear of God. Verse 2, what does that lead to? Flattery of self, for he flattereth himself in his own eyes. Narcissism. The elevation of I am my own God, I am my own authority, absolute autonomy, absolute independence. My friend, let me just throw this out at you. We are not independent beings. We are dependent on our God, and frankly, we are interdependent on each other. And, and that's why narcissism, especially a grandiose kind of narcissism and There may have been been in David's mind an image of Saul here. This may have been written when Saul was coming undone. uh, And everybody was witnessing Saul's ego getting bigger and bigger and his narcissistic behavior driving him really to self-destruction. Saul was his own worst enemy. God gave Saul every chance imaginable to worship him, to obey him, to lead well, uh, to stay humble, and and Saul just grabbed a hold of his name and his ego and his again he was a, he was a classic narcissist and he flattered himself in his own eyes it's all about me until his iniquity be found to be hateful he wrote it it grew hatred within him anybody that did not go along with Saul was a hated enemy i heard a statement last week from a friend who used to work for an extreme narcissistic, uh, domineering, um, type A, abusive, authoritarian individual, like Saul was, and this person said that uh, the, the there was there was um, a statement made that he did not. This individual had either servants or enemies, and there was no in between. And that's exactly how a narcissist thinks. That's exactly how a wicked heart thinks. You're either going to serve my agenda, serve my objectives, make me what I want to be, or you're my enemy. Um, And so David is profiling the exploitative, the um, userness, if I can say that, Of of a of a narcissistic profile or a wicked profile, flattering himself but hating others, domineering others. Now the reason I am taking my time through these first couple of verses. Let's read verse three. The words of his mouth are iniquity; every word is uh, contrived in deceitfulness, and it's weaving a political narrative or spin or lies or deception. In other words pathological lying. Okay? That is pervasive in our American culture. It's pervasive across the world. We we lie before we even think about it because we're trying to meet our own objectives. Truth doesn't matter. We just want our own outcomes. And that's how Saul was thinking. He hath left off to be wise and to do good. Now what a contrast David is is portraying here because he's chosen wisdom, he's chosen goodness, and he wants to resist this own um, sin tendency in his own life, even as he sees it unfold in others. In, in other words, my friends, why is it um, beneficial to take time and consider the diagnostic of verses one, two, three, verse four? He devises mischief upon his bed, sets himself. In a way that is not good, he abhorreth not evil. This whole profile that embraces evil, embraces lies, embraces um, pride and rebellion and defiance against God. Why is it important to study this diagnostic and to meditate on it for a while? Well, because we're all prone to it. We are all easily drawn into it. I have made it, I'll just give you for instance in my life. Um, and I want to grow I want to diminish my pride, my ego. I want to grow in humility. I want to make sure that I don't become bigger in my own eyes. I want to uh, keep a right view of who God says I am. You see, humility is not self-deprecation because God doesn't deprecate you. He does diagnose that you were a sinner and if you've been redeemed, you are his redeemed child. You are growing in grace. Uh, He calls you righteous. But um, so humility does not denigrate itself, but it does not elevate itself. It has an appropriate, a truthful, a right view of self. David knew he was God's chosen king and he wanted to rule with confidence in that call, but in humility that God was the ultimate king and he wanted to have a heart towards God after God and pointing others to God. Uh, I, I think of this in my own life because I know so many pastors that are too big in their own sight. I've seen so many downfalls based in pride and arrogance. I've seen the strut of a, a, of a big egoed pastor. I've seen narcissism in the pulpit many times and in many situations, many different personalities over 45 years of being a Christian. Um, And it is a trap. I read a book uh, a couple years ago, maybe a year ago, called When Narcissism Comes to Church. And the author of the book wasn't just talking about leadership. He was talking about really the profile of narcissism that can show up in every personality type. And there's different personality frameworks out there. You've probably seen them, whether it's the Enneagram or something else. All of them are dangerous if you uh, don't filter them through the principles of scripture or if you let them be authoritative in your life. And all of them are to some degree in the most innocent version of them helpful in diagnosing what are your natural personality, what's your natural personality shape. Uh, The problem is people elevate them to the value of Scripture and like authoritative truth instead of using them to see what are my sin tendencies, what are my flesh tendencies, and how does the Spirit of God fill me and change me and sanctify me so that this isn't just my excuse of who I am. No, I can grow, I can can become. And here's the deal. The, The author of When Narcissism Comes to Church profiled that narcissism is in all of us to some level or some degree, doesn't always have to be grandiose narcissism, but every personality type has a a flesh, a non-spirit-filled version or manifestation of a me-centered view of things. And what David is diagnosing is that me-centeredness is wicked. And even as he's diagnosing it in others, we get to learn from it, And be careful, my friend, that you don't try to diagnose it in others before you take a long, extended look in the mirror and you say, God, am I a narcissist? Am I me-centric? Does my world revolve around me? And is everybody else wrong? And I am always right. It's a good diagnostic. It's a humbling diagnostic. It's a convicting diagnostic. You know, if you're always right, then you are your own God. Um, if God can't correct you, and if everybody else is always wrong, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good uh, hint at the fact that you you have fallen into the traps of verses one through four. Be careful, my friend, that you don't become Saul. Be careful that you don't subconsciously flatter yourself, lose the fear of God, um, and be drawn into hatred and iniquity and mischief and deception. Be careful that you don't inadvertently get drawn away from wisdom and goodness, um, and that you set yourself in a in a bad way. It can happen to any of us. Make sure it's not happening to you. Be careful about incriminating others, without first taking a good look. God, is this me? Is this me? And where it is, here's the good news: Jesus can save you from that and change that in you. He can break it down and give you a love for others that comes from him. Happy Friday. Have a great weekend. If I don't see you, we'll see you on Monday.